you're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. We know that the journos lie. That's not anything new. We've seen that plenty of times. We're all very aware of the fact that they always root for one side. They are Democrats, 95 percent of them. They're, they're controlled effectively by the Democrat Party, or perhaps, as some argue, the Democrat Party is controlled by the corporate media. They work hand in hand. They are symbiotic organisms. But we have yet another story to add into the mix here. That's fake news. I mean, the reason that Trump's fake news allegations uh, or accusations, uh, quite honestly, just the fact that he used the term against them, upset them so much was because at some level they know it's true. They don't want to believe it. They'd never admit that. But at some level, Donald Trump is somebody who was able to speak the truth about the media that they are hoping the American people don't figure out. It is largely now a a profession of propaganda. It's not something that you can count on. It's not something you can trust. People have their own motivations. They bring their own biases to it. And more than ever now, it is used to weaponize perception against conservatives and Republicans. And I want to get into that some more. But you know what else can be weaponized is your data. That's right. The stuff that's constantly being collected on you online. You know you can't trust these social media companies, right? They sell your stuff, but they're also tracking it. They're keeping it all on servers. What do you think that turns into in a matter of years? Given how they're already censoring us, they're already looking for people who have wrong think in their social media profiles. Don't you think it's time that you took the basic step to protect yourself online? Do what I do with ExpressVPN. I've got the ExpressVPN app on my phone. It's so straightforward, so easy. You get this app, you set it up, you can have it protecting you on multiple devices. Here's what it does. ExpressVPN encrypts my network data so it protects sensitive information from being compromised, okay? And it's so easy to use. One click, I mean, I'm not somebody who's super tech savvy. One click and you'll protect all of your devices. And they make sure that they protect your ability to operate online without everything being spied on. Don't you just want to have some privacy for what you're doing online without big tech peering over your shoulder and selling all of your activity? Stop handing over your data to these big tech left-wing companies. Go with the VPN, the virtual private network that I trust for online protection. All you have to do is go to expressvpn.com slash buck to get three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. Please go now, set it up. You'll be happy you did. This is a must. You need this on your phone. You need this on your devices. Expressvpn.com slash buck. They're supposed to bring us the truth in journalism. That's what they say. They speak truth to power. They, they claim that their very profession is all about bringing you the facts. Well, let's do a quick review. What are some of the, the giant, awful lies told with intent as well? I don't believe that these were situations where they were good faith errors. I think that they recognized an opportunity to push an agenda They recognized a means of pushing forward politics and they took it right. They they saw what they were doing. They saw that they could get away with it in their own minds. And so they bashed Republicans with fake news. I mean, fake news has been weaponized and you should never forget that fake news 
was originally a term that the Democrat media was using to try to explain away news stories online. They said that the Trump supporters were all believing this is back in 2015. We're all believing things that weren't true. And that's why Trump had so much support. The Russian fake news online was what they were turning to. Well, for a lot of us, we recognize that when Trump turned this around on them, it really stung. The journos were upset by this because it was so true that they peddle in falsehoods on a regular basis. And they're not upset about it. They only get upset when it doesn't work and when they get caught. At some level, they recognize this is their job. They are activists. They are advocates. They are not people who are neutral in a pursuit of the truth. And some of the clear examples of this, I mean, the biggest one that comes to mind more than really any other is the Russia collusion hoax, which they pushed for years and actually still cling to at some level. They'll say, well, there wasn't quite the collusion that we said there was, but there was clearly something going on and there was a willingness to collude. They put on their Freud hats and they say, well, We can see into the minds of Trump and his people. They would have colluded if they could have gotten away with it. Of course, that's not what we were told in the initial phases early on. What they were telling us is that Trump worked with the Russian government, with Putin and the Kremlin to steal the election. That was an awful lie. It's one that undermined a president. It's one that was used as the primary method. Think about this. That was the number one uh, rallying cry of the hashtag resistance while Trump was in office. It was a lot. They actually got a special counsel based off of it. I mean, they were able to take it to the next level. It wasn't merely we don't. uh, It wasn't merely a question of, you know, this is one of several stories or, or areas where we're going to attack the president. They were able to use this to turn the government apparatus against a sitting president. It was all lies. Did anyone really suffer the consequences for this? No. In fact, over at MSNBC, it caused a big ratings boom. Same thing at CNN. The Russia collusion hoaxers and now truthers were overwhelmingly promoted. It advanced their careers. I mean, there was some guy I remember who wrote a book. I don't remember his name now. He's an idiot called Proof of Collusion. And the guy had like almost a million followers on Twitter. Some total clown that nobody should have ever heard of or, or believed or listened to or read created a big career for himself. The guy's an idiot. And there's tons of people out there like that. So not only do they lie and advance their political goals, they benefit from the lie. And then they go around telling us all, that, we, that, that Trump lies so much and that we're delusional because we don't see the Trump lies. Yeah, you know, Trump lies about how many ice cream, ice cream scoops he had last night and they freak out about it. And, you know, I, I sit here and I see what's going on with this once again. And I actually worry about the future of the country. I really do. Because we now have the elites. We have this cast of so-called truth tellers who are, the biggest frauds and the biggest liars in the country. So there's Russia collusion, which was, as you know, a a big lie. Um, There is their willingness to suppress stories they don't like, like the Hunter Biden story. That's a form of lying, suppression of truth. And that was right before the election. We know what they did there. Uh, There was the uh, the insurrection day where people beat Officer Sicknick to death 
with flagpoles. That was the story, you know, that they were saying that there were there were murders of police officers on Capitol Hill during the January 6th insurrection day. It was a riot. It was not an insurrection. And we all know it. But Officer Sicknick did not die from being beaten to death. In fact, he didn't die from any blunt force trauma or any assault of any kind based on the autopsy information that we've been given, not officially, but that has been reported on. That's a pretty damn big lie, isn't it? Saying that a police officer was beaten to death by people so you can blame everybody who generally is on the right of American politics. We're, we're all responsible for that. And we, it turns out, well, no, that's not what happened. How could the media get that wrong? Ah, but you see, it served the purpose. That's the point. It served the purpose. And then that brings me to the latest one. You'll recall that President Trump was very upset and did not did not uh, believe at first the results and still perhaps doesn't the results of the 2020 presidential election. Well, as part of during that as part of that whole period and that that back and forth, the Washington Post uh, published a story on January 9th saying that Trump essentially pressured Georgia, the a Georgia elections investigator to, quote, find the fraud. OK, find the fraud. And just a few days ago, now, that was that was a big deal for everyone to understand this, because they were saying that now Trump was using his position as you know, now the outgoing president, but he was using his position still as the man occupying the Oval Office to change the results of the election using pressure. That's a big charge to make. That really got a lot of attention. And in fact, the line, find the fraud, was cited in the articles of impeachment against Trump that the Democrats and the Congress brought against him for a second time. Well, just a few days ago, you got to hear this. The Washington Post, remember, that story was, was January 9th. Now it's March 11th. Two months pass. And here is what they add to this story as a correction. Two months after publication of this story, the Georgia Secretary of State released an audio recording of President Donald Trump's December phone call with the state's top election investigator. The recording revealed that the Post misquoted Trump's comments on the call based on information provided by a source. Trump did not tell the investigator to find the fraud, or say she would be a national hero if she did so. Instead, Trump urged the investigator to scrutinize ballots in Fulton County, Georgia, asserting she would find dishonesty there. He also told her she had the most important job in the country right now. A story about the recording can be found here. The headline and text of the story have been corrected to remove quotes misattributed to Trump. So they lied about what he said. How do they do that? How did that, How did this actually happen? Well, they used anonymous sourcing as the as the people telling them that this is what Trump said. Right. Remember, on page 10 of the Democrats impeachment brief, they highlighted this Washington Post article and the fake quotes in oral arguments while it was being televised. So they used this. They used it. Doesn't this remind you of something else? Oh, wait. Untrue news stories, lies from left wing Democrat media organizations are then cited in official government proceedings to attack an enemy of the left, to attack a Republican, just like what happened in the FISA 
debacle going after Carter Page, just like what happened when they were going after George Papadopoulos and people in the FBI were saying, well, look at what Yahoo reported on. Yahoo's reporting bullcrap and the FBI morons, because that's what the people involved in this were, morons were like, well, that gives us the justification. If it's reported by Yahoo or the Washington Post, it's got to be true. What the heck is going on here? This is this is not the way a free and fair society can run. Enough is enough. We cannot trust these news organizations. They are not trustworthy. We need to understand that. It's not a mistake. It's who they are. This is what they've become. Journalism is is not a thing in America anymore. There are some journalists, but the overall practice of journalism is just warring propaganda machines pushing the left-wing political agenda. That's all. So they, they lied about, about what Trump said. The only reason we know about this is because there's an actual recording, and the recording was found in the trash folder on, on a computer belonging to a Georgia elections investigator when there was a Freedom of Information Act request, and th- this is what ended up happening. Unbelievable. And, and, you know, other news outlets used their own anonymous sources to verify the quotes attributed to Trump that The Washington Post also had anonymous sources. Was it all the same source? This is why anonymous sourcing is one of the biggest shams, one of the biggest uh, frauds that the media perpetrates because, you know, they can say whatever they want and they'll never reveal their source and they're just making it up as they go along. Or it's all one person, but 10 outlets are all talking to the same person. So you think it's a lot of different sources. According to this is from uh, the Federalist.com today, according to the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, the secretary of state's office secretly recorded the conversation, mischaracterized its contents to The Washington Post and then attempted to delete the recording. It was recently discovered in a laptop trash folder as part of an open records search. So. The Washington Post fabricated quotes they knew were from a secondhand source in the office of a political enemy, couldn't confirm the quotes with additional sourcing, still attributed them to the sitting president of the United States, used those quotes as a basis to speculate the president committed a crime, and the Democrat Party would later repeatedly cite the bogus article when attempting to impeach Trump for high crimes and misdemeanors. This is all from my friend Mark Hemingway at thefederalist.com. Quote, but wait, it gets much worse. Several other major media outlets, including NBC, ABC, USA Today, PBS and CNN, confirmed the fabricated quotes from the Post anonymous sources by citing their own anonymous sources. He writes, alas, not only is this going to pass without any consequences, we are inured to this behavior from the media. The Post did this at the tail end of a Trump presidency defined by years of the media repeatedly being debased by sources who use credulously granted anonymity as a cloak to pass off dodgy information, enrich themselves, or ironically enough, so doubt about the results of the 2016 election. It's not exactly puzzling why the Trump White House might have, might have stopped returning reporters' phone calls. Whether or not the mistakes above were intentional, this kind of thing has become so commonplace and reckless that intent is almost functionally irrelevant With near universality, all these damning media screw-ups run in one political direction. 
It's a shame New York Governor Andrew Cuomo didn't try and kiss any of the grandmothers he killed. Otherwise, the media may have been obligated to cover his deadly policies. End quote. Mark Federal, uh, Mark Hemingway at the Federalist just lighting it up here. And uh, it's, it's exactly the point. I mean, this our media deserves. Honestly, it deserves repudiation. It deserves scorn. These people are atrocious. They're immoral. They're unethical. They ruin lives. There's no decency. There's no honesty. And they're mostly really dumb, too. They think they're smart. A lot of them manage to weasel their way into relatively fancy institutions for their degrees. Columbia Journalism School or whatever. It's all meaningless, friends. It doesn't it doesn't actually tell you anything about them. A lot of them just found some way to use the system to their own benefit. And that's all they do. That's really all their career is all about. They use the system to elevate themselves at the expense of truth, decency, hard work, ethics. It's all about them. It's a profession full of sociopaths who weaponize their quasi-psychosis on behalf of the Democrat Party and get rich and famous doing so. At least the TV journos do. The print journos, they just walk around generally looking, you know, frazzled and frumpy and upset and angry and hate Republicans and pretend that they're doing God's work by writing editorials disguised as news pieces. That is the American media today. And the fact that they would lie about a president and that that lie would find its way into another impeachment trial after other lies told about the president for the first impeachment trial, after other lies told about the president to bring a special counsel against him, how much lying can they do about us before we realize they are bad people who cannot be trusted? I will tell you that we would have worked just as hard to eliminate those acts of voter suppression as we did to eliminate the ones that existed in 2018. We were able to mitigate that harm in 2020, and we will continue to fight. The reality is voters, when they see that people are attacking their right to vote, we respond and we respond with a fury that is born of urgency. We would not have the American Rescue Plan that is going to lift 171,000 children in Georgia out of poverty. We'll serve millions of Americans and lift them out of poverty. That's something that would not happen but for the right to vote. And so we were, I refuse to countenance anything other than the deepest commitment to defending our democracy through fairfight.com and the work that other organizations are doing this has become a big national fight for you um, but i am curious are you still thinking about running for governor in georgia in 2022 my focus is on making sure we have elections in 2022 and that means that we have to defend our democracy against all enemies foreign and certainly the domestic enemies we see permeating and unfortunately populating our state legislatures fighting hard to restrict access to the right to vote, trying to make certain that people of color and young people cannot participate fully in our democracy, which is the least patriotic thing I can imagine in this moment. Stacey Abrams can go on air and say absolutely anything. And the journos like Chuck Todd, who's just a, a sniveling little fraud, but the journos nod their heads. They go, yeah, that's right. Stacey Abrams, you're so great. You're, you're not somebody who pretends that she won an election that she lost, and no one ever calls her out on this. I mean, they're putting someone on, on TV here who's the big defender of free and fair elections, according to Democrats, Stacey Abrams, who can't accept that she lost an election. She walks around acting like she actually won the Georgia uh, gubernatorial race, but she didn't. But that's okay, because she's Stacey Abrams. She suggests on national TV that Republicans 
because of the domestic threat. Oh, yes, the QAnon election cancelers are out there. More hysteria and nonsense from Democrats that there might be canceled elections. What? No pushback. Oh, I'm working on having just making sure we have elections in 2022. Oh, yes, because the big, bad, mean Republicans will will get rid of all of the elections. Every election integrity measure is racist. Every everything that we do, you know, I just want to know why have any rules about elections at all? I mean, at some point you run into this, right? Why not just have, you know, anybody can vote. And whatever's in the box at the end of the day at the polling station. And who says at the end of the day, let's let's have an election year and we'll just sort of let we'll, it'll all be on the honor system. And you can just write down the name of the person you want to be president and you put it in that box. And there's no security because we trust people. There's no there's no checking, you know, the voter rolls. There's no providing ID. There's no are you a U.S. citizen? We'll just, you know, it'll be like passing a hat around that everyone writes it on a piece of paper. We'll do that all over the country. We'll do it for a whole year because, you know, we believe in democracy. How, how much elimination of voter integrity measures is is actually too much for Democrats? You have to ask that question. The answer, by the way, is there's no such thing as long as they win. That's all that matters. Well, it's been pretty aggressive. I mean, you've had uh, significant contributions by The New York Times, Jesse McKinley, Albany Times Union, Brendan Lyons up there pushing the story forward. New York Post uh, champion, Washington Post, um, all these forces gathering, you know, sort of undoes the, the right wing uh, conspiracy theory about the mainstream media, which is that we don't cover Democratic politicians. But I would be remiss, Brian, if I didn't mention CNN's own huge media story here with Chris Cuomo, uh, the anchor at the nine o'clock hour, who covered Andrew Cuomo and had all these wonderful Lovathon interviews with him, more than 10 of them. And they suspended the conflict of interest rule for Chris Cuomo for those interviews. Yet all of a sudden they've enforced it again now that Andrew Cuomo is in the midst of an historic scandal in the Albany State House. So I think that that is a major black eye for CNN. A major black eye for CNN. Uh, this guy, Wemple from The Washington Post, he's on CNN air and he is uh, he is giving them a little, little slap right across the face. He's the one he's the one giving him a black eye right there. I got to say, I was a little surprised. Apparently, apparently the journos can actually get upset at their fellow journos when they're so grotesquely uh, unethical in their professions, when there's such an obvious fraudulence at the heart of what they're doing and just the conflict of interest and all of it. Yeah. Turns out that uh, that occasionally even even the lib journals will have to call out their fellow lib journals. That was a fascinating one. But just to get into the the heart of the issue here for a second, why is he even pointing this out? What's he stating? Why is he saying this? Well, as you know, back when Chris, I'm sorry, when uh, Andrew Cuomo was the, the hero, the hero of the pandemic we were told that it was fine that his brother, Chris Cuomo, was interviewing him on on what is ostensibly, or at least theoretically, allegedly, a news channel night after night. And it was all supposed to be so great. And look at these two brothers and during the pandemic and everything else. I mean, that's just not journalism, right? I mean, I have two brothers. They're they're just the best guys, the most fantastic individuals you could ever you could ever meet. But uh, you know, if I were doing if I were pretending to be a journalist covering the news, it would not be appropriate for me to have my politician brother on 
and give him a back rub on TV every night. I mean, that, that's just not that's not cool. That's not the, what you, it's it's fraud. Look, they can do whatever they want at CNN. They just can't be frauds about it. They can't lie about it. You know, if they want to be a propaganda channel for the DNC, that's fine. Just say so. But they won't even do that. You'll notice I'm much harder on CNN than I am on MSNBC on this issue. I mean, MSNBC is engaged in all kinds of dishonesty and, and bull crap and they're left wing lunatics and they put fake Republicans on TV to just trash Republicans. So their audience thinks, oh, gee, the real Republicans actually hate the Republicans that have real support in the party. There's a lot of things, you know, it was the it was the home channel for the Lincoln Project, a lot of stuff to trash MSNBC for. But everyone knows MSNBC is lib central. Everyone knows that. CNN is every bit as left-wing as MSNBC in its propaganda efforts, but still clings to the absurd fiction that it is actually a, a journalistic endeavor, that they're speaking the truth to people, that they're bringing them the facts. You know, Apple and Banana, remember that? You know, facts first, all these different CNN slogans. It's just dishonest. And anybody who is discerning and and has critical thinking skills knows this, can come to this very obvious, very blatant uh, conclusion. You know, this guy from Washington Post calling out CNN. Yes, yeah, CNN has no response to that. And in fact, it's even worse because they waived the conflict of interest when they wanted to give a lot of a lot of puffery and a lot of uh, high fives to Governor Cuomo. Now that the guy is barely holding on, now that he's just still the governor for the time being. But I mean, I... This guy had an iron grip on that position, and now he's down to his last finger. I mean, he is, it's not looking good for him right now. I still think he's going to, I'll tell you this, I still believe Cuomo is going to hang on. Another fascinating thing is uh, is watching the libs try to defend Gavin Newsom. I mean, there was some Elizabeth Warren tweet, Buck, I've missed you. I haven't been on your show in a while. Because, you know, I'm, I'm out there fighting for the poor people, you know, the poors. I'm... I'm worth about 10 million, but oh gosh, golly, you know, I was going to be president and I just want to, I want to help all the poors, you know, that's what I want to do. The poor people out there. Yeah, sure. And, and I'm, I'm fighting for you. Oh gosh. Anyway, she's back and she's saying that it's essentially right wing provocateurs. It's right wing people who are the ones uh, who are trying to get rid of Gavin Newsom because Gavin Newsom listened to the science or something. And I'm sitting here saying, lady, California is all, de- this is all Democrats in control. They run the state government. They run the state legislature. There is no Republican governance in the state of California. And the people of California are the ones who realize Gavin Newsom is at, at best a hypocrite, at worst a, a hypocrite who's also an incompetent and, and an idiot uh, because of what happened during COVID and they saw the numbers. You know, it's really straightforward. Would you rather have been for the last 12 months a Floridian or a Californian? We all know the answer to that question. People are upset, but they're blaming somehow it's Republicans fault. They're blaming Republicans for Gavin Newsom in the midst of a recall. Anyway, uh, Cuomo here in New York, though, has has nobody to blame but himself. And it's Democrats who are pushing for him to go. And even Nancy Pelosi is saying that. He should, he should look look at his 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 heart. Play seventeen. What these women have said 
uh, must be treated with respect. They are credible and serious charges. And then I called for a uh, an investigation. I have confidence in the Attorney General uh, of New York. She has called for a, I think, expeditious uh, investigation. And uh, again, uh, with all the respect in the world for what these women have come forth and said. In terms of, uh, see, you're talking about New Yorkers now. Uh, in terms of generally speaking, uh, people have to look inside themselves and say, uh, and, and Governor Cuomo also, uh, are they, how affected is their uh, leadership in, in leading the state under the circumstances that are there? Uh, but I do think that the women deserve to hear the results of these investigations, as does the governor. Can he but be again, an effective no, leader now? No, no tolerance. No tolerance. And this is a subject very near and dear to my heart. This is no tolerance for sexual harassment. Let the world know that. But you're not calling on him to resign right now? I, I think we should see the results of the event, but he may decide. And there was, hopefully this result will be soon. Uh, and uh, what I'm saying is the governor should look inside his heart. He loves New York to see if, uh, if he can govern effectively. Isn't it a remark about how she's dancing around on this one? I had zero tolerance for sexual harassment. Zero tolerance. But we're going to tolerate it this time. I mean, she's like, we're not we're not really going to call for him to leave. You know, it's up to him. But we're very, very tough on this issue. Pelosi wants you to know, but not so not so tough that if Cuomo thinks you know, he should probably stay, that he shouldn't stay. Well, we got we got zero tolerance on this issue. But, you know, not so tough that, you know, that that's where we are. That's that's how this goes. So I would just say, you know, yeah. This is what you get from Democrats. A lot of pseudo moralizing while they're really just thinking about how will this affect our grip on power? How will this affect our ability to continue to be in control? That's that's what they're really thinking about. And it's a state official with Cuomo, but he's tied into the National Democrat covid narrative you have to remember that you know it's worse than a crisis i thought i would see a crisis but this is really a human heartbreak we have a brand new facility to care for these children they built it beyond capacity thinking they would never reach it today they just set the anniversary that they broke capacity more than a thousand and forty children and it's only growing every day and what that means is 120 of these border agents that are doing an extraordinary job in unbelievable times can't be on the border protecting us and when you go up to Monument 3 and you talk to those agents, it's not just people from Mexico or Honduras or El Salvador. They're now finding people from Yemen, Iran, Turkey. People on the on the terrorist watch list they are catching. And they're rushing it all at once. It's an open border, folks. I mean, it's as close to it as you're going to get without just straight up saying, all right, fire all of Border Patrol. Anyone who shows up gets to stay. You know, this is fascinating because America is a country, for example, that want you know that that claims extraterritorial taxation for all Americans. So if you if you're an American citizen, you live, you know, overseas, they'll they'll still tax you. And if you have American citizenship, I mean, America claims a lot of ability over you as as a political entity if you are in this country. But now some people can come and go as they please, and and they can enter the American family. Can they can they leave the American family too, whatever they want, without any. Any official process without having to let us know? I mean, can you just come back and forth? Oh, you know, I'm, I, I just I'm just wondering. I, I'm curious. 
Do do illegal immigrants, do they have to file taxes or no? People always say they pay taxes. No, they don't. They pay. First of all, if they did pay taxes, overwhelmingly, they would get a refund from the government because that's how our system works. As you know, the bottom 50 percent of earners pay two percent. The bottom 50 percent pay two percent of income tax in this country. But they would get a refund, no doubt, from the government. So they probably would want to file taxes if they could. Uh, because if you make uh, less than a certain amount, your government actually gives you money. But yes, they pay you know sales tax when they buy food and gas and cigarettes and things like that, the way the rest of us do. But do the laws apply or not? You know, I'm about to spend the next, uh, you know, oh gosh, I, I got to gather all this stuff together. We got tax season coming up, which is just a nightmare and I hate it. And I got to pull all these different things together. And if I don't do it, you know, the, the government insist that they know how much I owe, but they won't tell me what I owe. It's up to me to figure it out. And if I'm wrong, I can suffer consequences. If I'm wrong, I could even theoretically go to jail. They do that to people. And yet think about that. Who am I, who am I really harming? I mean, if, if, I'm, if my taxes are off by 10% or 15%, let's say, my, you know, what I, what I, does that affect the country? Zero, it affects the country zero. But they'll send more fines after me. They'll maybe threaten to throw me in prison if I if I mess up my taxes, even if it's a, a good faith error. I mean, I may think it's a good faith error. I think the tax system is an abomination. But you know what they say to you? The law is the law. So when it comes to taxes, get ready for this. The law is the law. You're not hurting anybody. It's super complicated. You know, nobody even really, you know, different accountants will come to different answers for how much a lot of people owe, depending on the circumstances. There are gray areas in the IRS code. There are some things where the IRS can't even tell you what the official ruling on something is. But the law is the law. And you are subject to to penalty and and even the loss of your freedom based upon that law. But illegal immigration is not a crime. That's what they want you to that. That's not a crime. You're not actually you know, stealing services from American taxpayers by being being here illegally. Although, aren't you? Or don't I pay taxes because just being here, I live under a certain regime of rule of law and protection and, you know, police and fire and the FBI and all these different services and things that are out there. You know, the, the Treasury Department, the Fed. I mean, we're paying for this with our tax dollars. So isn't illegal presence here essentially theft of services or no? Oh, it's, it's not? Okay. So then why do I have to pay taxes? Really think about this. You know, I understand there are a lot of people that, that probably don't want to pay taxes. Why don't we let the people who want to pay taxes pay them? And those of us who don't want to can just say, nah, not this year. It's been a tough year, COVID and everything. No, no, no income tax for me. Any one individual doing that isn't a problem. Any one individual doing that isn't going to hurt the treasury. It doesn't really matter. But yet they'll punish that person. They'll ruin that person's life if they have to. The IRS will come after you and they'll lock you up. But hold on a second. Why? Oh, because the law is the law. So the law is the law for American citizens when it comes to taxes, for American persons who are here legally, green card holders, etc., when it comes to taxes. But when it comes to illegal immigrants, nah, the law doesn't matter. Here's Kevin McCarthy trying to explain that, no, it's actually a problem. Play two. Illegal immigration is never right at any time. So let's fix legal immigration. But border security is number one. Let's finish those 17 miles we're already building. Let's make sure that we don't encourage people to think they're just going to become citizens by coming. 
keep the children back in their own country. And if they want to claim asylum, have the cases in their own country because 80% of them don't come true and they're already in the country. In America, you've got 10 million Americans out of work. Now you're bringing people in to compete for those jobs? And yet Democrats pretend to be the party of the working class. They're, they don't believe in supply and demand when it comes to labor. And uh, Professor Borjas at Harvard University, who I've read, I've read a lot of his work. He's done the, some of the most extensive research on this. Nationally, you can't necessarily see the effect of illegal immigrants in the labor pool. But when you look at areas where there's a big surge of illegal immigration for particularly unskilled labor or, or lower end wage uh, wages, you absolutely see the effect. Of course you do. Right. So it may not be that you, you feel it in northern Minnesota, but you might feel it in Arizona. You might feel it in southeast Texas. But Democrats pretend they're the ones who, who care about working families. Right. Hmm. Interesting. In fact, here's Ayanna Presley saying the GOP doesn't care about working families. Play 22. Yeah, there's there's no confusion. What that is, is uh, what uh, our GOP colleagues are so very good at doing is um, spearheading uh, misinformation campaigns, uh, including uh, perpetuating the big lie, which resulted in that insurrection on January 6th. Uh, I remain focused and my Democratic colleagues remain focused on centering the needs of everyone who calls this country home, uh, who has been hurting. We are making massive infusions uh, to our states and municipalities. Many of our governors and mayors have felt that they have been going it alone. And we're finally getting them the aid that they so desperately need that our GOP colleagues have 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 proudly um, affronted and obstructed at every turn. Also, massive infusions uh, to our community health centers. Uh, I represent the district with uh, the largest density of community health centers in the country. So we're getting them enough, enough, enough. Okay, they're bringing in hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants who are going to compete with working working families of all races in this country, by the way, for jobs at a time when we have gone through an economic nightmare. That's what's actually happening. And they held up aid to everybody who was going to get it for over six months. The Democrats. Let's let's live in reality, folks. Border crisis gets worse every day. More and more people. Facilities overrun. FEMA deployed to our southern border. But it's not a crisis, the Democrats say. Well, what is really going on here? And what are the politics at work? And what does this mean for the future of this country? Some big questions, important ones. We got our friend Ryan Gurdusky with us now to talk about all that and more. He is the author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. Ryan, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. So, you know, your populist revolution, it's interesting because it was really a populist revolt against the Gang of Eight bill back in the day that stopped Rubio and the others from being able to get through the, the amnesty bill are, are we seeing the beginnings of the, a, a public consciousness about what's really happening at our border, what the Democrat plan is, and therefore the pushback from actual Americans, from the actual voters could be severe? Or are you seeing a kind of uh, apathy toward it right now? Well, I know people are upset, actually. Right now, the CNN released a poll last week where the worst issue for Biden, where he was underwater by 12 points with voters, was on immigration. Uh, immigration is not an issue that a lot of people focus on, especially the media, until it's a crisis usually pertaining to the border. Uh, right now on the border, we do have a crisis over 100,000 people per month coming into the United States, cl- mostly declaring asylum. It's a lot of children and women. 
um, trying to get um, into the interior. And then what happens is, is under Trump, we had a policy called remain in Mexico. They would have to wait in Mexico, wait until a judge heard their asylum case, uh, asylum claim, and then rule whether it was you know, real or not real. Uh, now that policy is basically gone. They can come into the interior of the United States. Uh, they've over filled, they've filled over capacity, all of the detention centers. So they get released into the interior. They have put on a bus and shipped to either a city in California or Texas or Arizona. And then from there, go wherever they are. And they give given a ticket saying, come back in two years to come here an immigration judge. It's a total disaster. Um, and this is a disaster created by, um, two people, mostly George W. Bush, when he changed our asylum laws, and and um, and Joe Biden. Joe Biden, when he sat there and started gutting, when he did two things on the campaign trail, he promised illegal aliens both amnesty and free health care, and started gutting the Trump era immigration laws to protect our, what's going on right now. Trump warned that there were coyotes and human smugglers on the other side of the border waiting for Joe Biden. I mean, Central Americans, they pay a lot of attention to American laws and American politicians on immigration. So um, at this point, it's it's reached it's reached such a level where now they're renting out, um, you know, stadiums. I mean, there's a stadium in Dallas where they're going to be just putting thousands of kids, I think, thousands of people and just waiting. And, and, And I think the thing that annoys Americans the most is their children can't go to school in person. But illegal alien children who are who are arrested at the border are going to school in person. You know, we're told not to mass gather until Fourth of July at a barbecue, and they have three thousand people in a stadium in Texas. By the way, most of these people are not COVID tested, and there are many new strains of COVID coming out of Central America that is so bad actually that the UK and the EU have banned flights from Central and South America. So we have no, we have no. Uh, you know, broad COVID testing. We have new strains coming across the border. We have a global pandemic. We have high unemployment rates. And Joe Biden has single-handedly started gutting all the protections from safe third country agreements to remain in Mexico to the end of catch and release. He's created catch and release again, all on our southern border, um, all for political purposes. None of this is for public safety. None of this is for uh, protecting American labor, American jobs, or, or 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 health. I mean, this is a man who ran on COVID over and over and over and over again. And with new strains of COVID emerging throughout South America and Latin America, uh, he has taken the doors open to whoever can get into the United States, or you're probably going to make your way. And all the while enriching um, human smugglers and coyotes and drug smugglers and the drug cartel, the worst of humankind, the people who prey on poor people, uh, they are making billions and billions of dollars because of Joe Biden. Uh, we're speaking to Ryan Gerdusky, author of They're Not Listening and a conservative author, commentator. Ryan, who is this is a, another question that I, I always want people to, to know, to keep in mind, because the, the Democrats right now, when you listen to Jen Psaki and Joe Biden, they act like, oh, don't worry, we're going to we're going to handle this problem. But for a lot of people, they hear then they say, oh, so you're going to stop the inflow of people into the American interior, you know, 100,000 a month. From what I can tell, basically everybody's being let into the U.S. I mean, they, they get held for a while to process them to go through some things. But as long as they're claiming asylum, which they've all and I know this for a fact from when I've been at the border, they are told and trained 
by the actual cartel coyotes. I mean, they tell them this is what you say. They give them wristbands to show that they've paid the cartel now. That's that's a, a new process that's been put in place. But this is all very much, you know, a, a well-oiled machine of getting people into the United States. Who's not being able to who, who's being turned away? They act like they're turning a lot of people away. I don't see, you know, if, if they were telling us that 50 or 60 percent of migrants at the border were being sent back right away, I would be shocked. They are keeping I mean, they are keeping some people away, but it's not many, mostly single men or uh, non unaccompanied minors. But if you're a, a woman or an unaccompanied minor or a family unit, no, you're being processed immediately. So that's why that is it's causing a bigger crisis. Actually, remember when children at the border, children are used as as tools in this process where a child is put with an adult who is not their relative, who is not their family member or their parent being told at the border to say that is your family member and then being allowed to come in with adults. Um, That's I mean, that's a huge, huge, huge problem. Um, and, and it's only getting worse under the Biden administration. And you have this dual kind of narrative that's happening right now. You have some Republicans, including some attorney generals now are suing the Biden administration. You have the governor of Texas sending at least National Guardsmen, which won't really do anything besides process them a little more efficiently. Um, and you have some Republican congressmen and you have Democrat congressmen, Congressman Kuehler and Gonzalez, who represent the Texas-Mexico border, um, have come out strongly against the Biden administration. And then you have like Congresswoman Salazar, who's a Miami based congresswoman who is talking about legalizing illegal aliens. You have Senator Rick Scott, who I broke on Twitter yesterday, is preparing a DACA amnesty for, you know, building of the border wall, which would literally do nothing to stop the crisis that's happening right now. Um, uh, and you have Democrats who are sitting there and talking about a mass 22, 20 to 30 person, in my estimate, and Yale's estimate, uh, amnesty, a mass amnesty, which only incentivizes more border crossings. So you have you have a bunch of Republicans and Democrats um, incentivizing and promoting the idea that more people should come. And you have uh, and you have a, a lot of Republicans and a handful of Democrats saying, no, this is a real, real crisis. I think this week, according to Politico, they're going to have two amnesty bills voted on in the House. And at least 10 Republicans have co-sponsored one of the amnesty bills. Uh, do you do you so, see a future here, Ryan, in which there is not at least some kind of major amnesty that goes through? Because as far as I see this right now, it feels like Democ- if Democrats did amnesty for DACA, for all DACA people, which also would include their families, too. But that's there. there's always these... These uh, attendant, you know, people that where they focus on one group, but then also anybody that's in the in the general vicinity of, of that group, family members, etc., also recovered by it. Do you do you see a future in which there isn't some form of mass amnesty? Maybe not for all, however many millions, but two, three, four, five million, something like that. And I mean this um, year. Well, uh, this year, I mean, a doc amnesty would be the only thing that could possibly go through. But it's very difficult. I mean, not when you're having millions on the border and you're still having a, a a large crisis i mean that's the, the the problem with granting an amnesty is twofold one unless you actually fix the immigration system you're just going to have a future amnesty as well it's not like children aren't making their way into the country right now who are not daca recipients in fact probably more are making their way 
who are not DACA recipients, who will be future DACA recipients because they meet the criteria. They just don't meet the deadlines. So unless you fix the problem, we're going to have another DACA in five more years. Well, right. We had an amnesty in 1986 with Ronald Reagan, which Reagan admitted he basically got swindled. It was a promise right. that there would be border security. We'd never do this again. It was supposed to be a, a couple million people. Then ended up covering like close to three, four, five million people when all said and done. And here we are. <laughs> you know, we went yeah. through the 90s. Yes. Ton- and, but even even worse, the judges extended that amnesty for years afterwards. They expanded that amnesty through the, through, through the judicial process. So any amnesty that goes through, you can make it as narrow as possible. You could say only left-handed people from Guatemala who came in between May 1st and May 2nd, and judges will expand it. So it's not going to be what anyone thinks it is. Anyone who has this like grandiose idea, it's going to be narrow just for children, very compassionate. That's a complete lie. Yeah, no, it's going to get into the courts right away. We're, we're, talking to, right. we're talking to Ryan Gerdusky, author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. Ryan, we're, we're talking about the border crisis here. And and what we're facing now as, as a country as a result of this, where where is this a problem? When does this turn into a problem for Democrats? Because I think that the Democrat Party has managed to convince certainly its base and maybe a, a solid majority of all Democrats that illegal immigration is actually not bad. There's no downside to illegal immigration. I think that's where the Democrat Party is. Well, listen, if you're woke, like most Democrats are, you believe that. America is a better country if it's less white, because white people are inherently the cause of all social cancers and social ills. So why would you not support an abolishment to any border or any border laws to diversify the country as fast as possible? Because that means white people have less political say. They're less involved in the political uh, body politics. Not they're less involved, but they have a less proportional representation in the body politics. And that is, in essence, a good thing, according to woke idea people with the woke ideology, many of whom are, are who are white. Um, I think it gets into the problem for Democrats when it, when when independents and Republicans are souring on a position, and a, a portion of Democrats, like about a fifth of Democrats or maybe an eighth of Democrats, are souring on a position of immigration. And that's what's happening right now. If you look at public polls from CNN. Um, which is not a right-wing polling institution. They're, they're actually decent CNN's polls sometimes. Um, but uh, but you're seeing well, Joe Biden's approval rating, even PPP, which is a left-wing polling institution, has Joe Biden's approval ratings under 50% for the very first time. Um, it's being sunk by the immigration crisis at the border. And more than anything else, the things that irritate you know regular Americans who are apolitical is when they're told to live by double standards. When illegal alien children are allowed to go to school in person and their children aren't, when illegal alien criminals are allowed to, which is a new policy under Joe Biden, illegal alien criminals, lawyers are allowed to sit there and fight against deportation because they say it doesn't uh, or they're already on the process of being deported because they say it doesn't fill out with what Joe Biden's executive order state. So they could stay in the country even if they committed a crime because it's, 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 not, it's not within the crime purview of what Joe Biden said are their deportation um, priorities. Um, when 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 their when taxes don't have to be paid, when services can, can be can be extended, when all these things happen, they just feel like it's rigged against them, and it creates a boiling point 
that they look to a leader like Donald Trump. Now, maybe not Donald Trump in 2024, but a leader who sits there and points obvious things that everyone sees but are afraid to talk about when it comes to a portion of this country are allowed to live a certain way. Well, we have to live by different rules and standards. And that irritates the hell out of average America. What is the Republican way out of this? I think that's, an, you know, I've got I got very frustrated during the Trump years because we talked a lot about we heard a lot in the early days about how bad Obamacare was and, and we're going to have this great Republican health care plan. It didn't happen. OK, I mean, if people can sit around and talk about how it was going to happen or, the, you know, the obstruction or whatever. We had the House. We had the Senate. It didn't happen. What are Republicans going to do to solve this if they could? I mean, what, what is the approach well, the, that we could actually go? We could go forward with now. The most important thing Republicans can do is their attorney generals can sue the Biden administration and get nationwide injunctions on many of these rules, which is finally happening. Uh, the Florida AG Moody she just made a lawsuit today over some portion of the immigration bill. I haven't seen the court case. Eleven Republican attorney generals have sued over Biden stripping the public charge rule, which denies green card holder green cards to um, for aliens, legal aliens. Uh, they cannot get green cards if they owe money to the federal government through welfare. Um, a lot of them have sued over catch and release and over uh, remain in Mexico. I mean, they're starting to sue. That is our main ability to fight is in the courts and trying to get nationwide injunctions to at least slow the process for a year and maybe get to the Supreme Court and kind of see what happens. Uh, although it's very difficult to see how the Supreme Court would rule like that because the executive has so much purview over immigration. Uh, but nonetheless, at least slow the process down. And then with the Republican Congress, look, I mean, at the end of the day, you can talk about as many, not you, but anyone can talk about as many compassionate things as they want to do with the children or with this. The asylum laws in this country, which grant mass amount of, of, of waivers to anyone who says that they were in an abusive situation, that they have a gang after them, that their government is corrupt, is what's creating this crisis. The asylum laws 100 percent have to change more than anything else, more than a border wall. We need a legal wall. A legal wall that sits there and redefines how we process asylum in this country um, and and, you know, and and start working on new third safe country agreements and actually get all of Trump's executive orders on remain in Mexico, um, for instance, make that into an actual law that's that's on the books, not just an executive order, but a congressional law. Those things have to happen and they have to be the main priority. This last week, Republicans, what are they talking about? Abolishing the estate tax. I mean, it's it's it. They are some of them are truly living in another world. I mean, Kevin McCarthy brought members on the border to see what happened. They said it's a humanitarian crisis, which it is. Um, but that's not enough. Uh, you know, in order to sit there and actually get a real answer on the illegal alien problem, we need to change our asylum laws. You know, first and foremost. You think uh, we just got about a minute left? What do you think of the chances? That this Biden administration, uh, you know, what would you say the percentage chances are that, that it achieves amnesty? Oh, uh, I don't know. Fifteen percent. So not a that high. You actually think they might not get there. A broad amnesty. It's never going to. When Rubio and Graham came out in the Senate and said it, we, we're not going to support an amnesty. You could see by the, who they're working with. They're getting Bob Menendez to push the amnesty. He brings no broad consensus with the Republicans. If it was Dick Durbin, I would say we have a serious threat. But but Bob Menendez does not bring anybody. And the House is moving. You, you don't think they'll break the over. filibuster over this? No, no, not a chance. I what? just don't think that they're going to do it over over amnesty. What about H.R. 1? 
No, I don't. I don't. I don't think that. I don't think they want to break the filibuster. I think there's probably nine Democrats in the Senate that are all hoping for Joe Manchin. But if it's not Joe Manchin, it's Kristen Sinema. If it's not her, it's Maggie Hassan. If it's not him, it's John Tester. There's a lot of Democrats who do not want to break the filibuster. Not not quite as radical as some of us are thinking. We'll have to see. Ryan, we'll have you back on this one. Check out his book. They're not listening. How the elites created the national populist revolution. Ryan Gerdusky, everybody. Ryan, thanks so much. Thank you. We should not get so fixated on this elusive number of herd immunity. We should just be concerned about getting as many people vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can. Because herd immunity is still somewhat of an elusive number. We made a projection of it would likely be, I've said many times, somewhere between 70 and 85%, but we don't know that for sure. So rather than fixating on that, why don't we just say get as many people vaccinated as quickly as you possibly can. And every day that goes by now with more than 2 million doses going into people, we're getting closer and closer to control of this pandemic. I think we should be closer and closer to telling Fauci to shut the heck up. That's what I think. This guy's not useful. He's wrong over and over again. He is a nightmare, okay? This guy is nothing but downside. I mean, the fact that he's saying... We might be able to get to a point where we can actually have a small gathering for the 4th of July. Entirely entirely conceivable, he says. I mean, I think it's also entirely conceivable that Dr. Fauci is pretty much worthless and every American with a shred of critical thinking skills is already ignoring him. Right. We, We know what is dangerous and what's not. We don't need Fauci to keep on readjusting the thermometer of our lives every day. Oh, you know, a little too hot, a little too cold. Oh, no, that's just right. You know, I want my porridge not too hot, not too cold, just right. That's that's the Fauci approach. You can't live your life that way. You just can't do it. All right. It's not not feasible to live your life that way. And yet that is what Fauci seems to demand. That is what he seems to insist on. And I, I think it's it's outrageous. I also think it's outrageous that they're acting like the problem with vaccines right now. The problem with vaccines has to do with Trump in some capacity. Like they're still looking for the boogeyman, right? They still want to pretend that the issue here is is Donald Trump. Here is uh, Admiral Girouard, who's saying the following about this play 10. Here's the problem. In a CNN poll, 46% of Republicans say they will not try to get a vaccine. And obviously there's one person with a lot of influence over that group, former President Trump. Do you think he should be actively encouraging his followers to get the vaccines that were developed under his own administration, under the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed? Well, thanks for having me on. And of course, the answer is yes. I think all of us in the medical community, um, in the liturgical community. And I think it's very important for uh, former President Trump, as well as the vice president, to actively encourage all the followers to get the vaccine. This is something that the Trump administration developed under its time. And uh, I think all of the above, including uh, the former president speaking out, would be very important. I did not know uh, that he was vaccinated uh, until I uh, heard it uh, as it was reported in the news. Um, I get a little hesitant to uh, 
to uh, make judgments about people's, you know, private medical decisions about whether there could have been, you know, potential uh, issues that he did not want to make it public. But I think the point now is, and I think this is where we are, that we all have to get together and urge every American. Um, the people who follow uh, former president are very committed to President Trump, and I think his leadership still matters a great deal. I think uh, there's a lot that I want to say about this and just about the vaccines and the whole process and everything else here. But let's first have have Biden. Interestingly enough, Biden was out there telling everybody uh, that forget about Trump. Other people are more important uh, when it comes to MAGA folks getting the vaccine. So we got a little bit of a conflicting message here from the libs. What a surprise. Play nine. I discussed it with my team, and they say the thing that has more impact than anything Trump would say to the the MAGA folks is what the local doctor, what the local preachers, what the local people in the community say. So I urge, I urge all local docs and and ministers and priests to talk about why, why it's important to get it to get that vaccine and even after that until everyone is in fact vaccinated <sighs> everyone has to get vaccinated huh does that mean children children pass the, the, the this disease basically thank god bounces off kids it, it they if they get it it's like maybe a sniffle and then they're fine and they're also not very uh, important vectors of the disease for adults So they're not a high risk for giving it to adults, even if they do get the disease. And if we want to get to herd immunity, aren't children getting this because children are basically fine? I mean, I think you've had you've had millions of infections of children across the country and something like maybe maybe 100, 100 deaths in total from covid-19, which is which is actually less than what you do, what you see for people under 18 in any any given year from the flu. Um, I mean, I'll never forget. I had a friend in media who died in 24 hours from the swine flu, a perfectly healthy, uh, wonderful young woman. It was really tragic and sad. And it just it's a, one of those freak things that can happen. I mean, you can get you can get the flu and it just hits your system at the wrong time in the wrong way. And it was swine flu in that case. But we all live with these risks all the time. But I want to know what or we actually should be willing to live with these risks all the time. I want to know what the vaccine uh, what the vaccine rules are really going to be here. Because you see what they do is they, they it starts as a suggestion and then it becomes coercion. It starts as we'd really like you to do this thing. Hey, guys, I think you should wear a mask. And then it's you can't go anywhere without wearing a mask. And if you don't wear a mask, we're going to fine you and maybe we're going to throw you in jail. It always starts as a suggestion from the government. And then and then what is suggested becomes mandatory and what is mandatory becomes uh, mandated through law, through punishment of, of the legal system. And and then if you challenge it, then they come after you. And I got to say with these vaccines, uh, you know, if, if people who are of who are at high risk have had plenty of opportunity for a 95 percent effective vaccine that's going to protect them. Are we really supposed to continue to live with all these restrictions in society because people who are at a legitimately acceptable risk themselves don't want to get this. You know, they just shut down, and, and trust me, I'm very aware of this. They just shut down a whole bunch of European countries 
that were were giving out the uh, the vaccine from AstraZeneca. They they stopped doing this, okay. Um, but they, they stopped this in a, in a number of countries. But now the EU is saying they're convinced the AstraZeneca benefits outweigh the risk. I mean, they shut it down in like France. Here we go. This is from the AP. With coronavirus cases rising in many places, governments face the grimmest of dilemmas. Push on with the vaccine that is known to save lives or suspend use of AstraZeneca over reports of dangerous blood clots in a few recipients, even as the European regulators said there was no indication the shot was responsible. It has created a jagged divide across the globe, forcing politicians to assess the health risks of halting the shots at a time when many countries, especially in Europe, are already struggling to overcome logistical hurdles and vaccine hesitancy among their populations. Sweden was the latest to join a swelling group of European Union nations choosing caution over speed, even as the head of the European Medicines Agency said the agency is firmly convinced the benefits of AstraZeneca outweigh the risks. So there there, there are a number of major European countries that have uh, stopped with this. Germany, Italy, France, Spain, all, I mean, those are, really the, the biggest EU countries, all suspended it. So I think it's so interesting as well, the suppression efforts on social media around vaccines have, I think, made this whole campaign worse. They've made this all more difficult because people feel like there's only one approved narrative allowed. You know, there can be official statements. There can be CDC and government statements, and that's all fine. But when the only thing that's allowed are official statements, especially when we've seen those official bodies be wrong, I mean, flat out wrong at different. Do I have to play the audio of Fauci saying masks are a joke outside? By the way, he was right then. But that's a whole other conversation. Do I have to say that, uh, you know, that, that do I have to play these things for you where they've admitted that they got it wrong? We all know that. But yet, even though we understand that these organizations are are quite fallible, and that they're also making policy decisions about the public that are supposed to weigh benefit and risk, they are only allowing certain narrative. They're only allowing certain things to be said. And it's wrong. It's wrong what they're doing. You know, the, the antidote to misinformation about any health issue, whatever, is for people to make the case and show that it's wrong. It's not censorship and shut this down and you can't say this you know and and by the way they they don't they pretend on the social media platforms that they just will put a you know here's a i mean i got recently on my facebook page which i hope you're all following me on facebook if you're not please do buck sexton facebook.com slash buck sexton but my, my team we got hit with a misleading post because someone shared it we shared a photo of, of gas prices at a gas station in California. And Facebook says it's misleading because, well, that's not the national average. I didn't say it was the national average. I didn't say it's representative of, but it is a, 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 an evidentiary point about how high gas prices are going in some places. It was real. It wasn't doctored. You know, this would be like say, if I showed a photograph of a homeless encampment near Times Square, which there's been a lot of that in New York City recently. And I say, wow, the homeless problem in New York is getting really bad. And Facebook hits me with a, you know, missing context or, you know, could could lead to misperception. 
because there are a lot of other people that aren't homeless and you're only showing a photo of the homeless. But that's what we've come to, folks. That's happening now. And with vaccines, you ask, you raise any questions about all vaccines have some risk, some risk of side effect. That's a reality. Right. And, you know, I'm not anti-vax. I've gotten a ton. I've gotten more vaccines than I mean, I, can't, I literally can't remember all the vaccines I've gotten. When I was in the CIA, they sent me to some really nasty places. So it was, you know, here's this shot and that shot and this shot and that. I mean, I was just like a pincushion. But I understand that you can have a bad, the same way that you can have a bad reaction to Tylenol. You know, you could have stomach bleeding from acetaminophen. That can happen. You know, usually it's if you take too much of it, but what's too much? It depends on the individual. Anyway, point here being when they don't allow discussion about this to happen, when they shut it down and punish people, then we get to situations like this where, okay, if somebody was talking about AstraZeneca's side effects a month ago and were told they're an anti-vax lunatic, now they see this, that Italy, Spain, France, and Germany, nations with hundreds of millions of people have suspended these vaccinations because, or this vaccination, rather, this one type of vaccination because of concerns over a side effect what is that? Does that raise trust in the public discourse around this? I, I think we all know the answer. It makes us feel like there's only the approved narrative and everything else is shut down. And that makes us distrustful of the official narrative. And this is what the lockdown censoring left doesn't understand or doesn't care about. We created a more stable, more peaceful Middle East. And, and you can see the impacts on Americans all across our country, whether that's through higher gas prices that come with the the risk that Iran will be ascendant. All of those things reduce our security here at home. We can do better than that. The Trump administration did. I hope this administration won't go back, won't give away the store for the sake of some deal that is not going to prevent Iran from having a nuclear weapon. They're the world's largest state sponsor of terror. They're most anti-Semitic nation on the planet, wanting to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. This is unacceptable, and the United States should maintain the policies that we did, which we're pushing back against them in a serious way. Why do you think we're trying to do this? Uh, you know, Stuart, it's a great question. You know, eight years of President Obama's policy, the deal, uh, the same team is around, Wendy Sherman, some all the same cast of characters. I think they're just wedded to this deal, which has clearly demonstrated it failed. The deal is dead. The Europeans have come to know this as well. I can't explain why they would want to go back to it. It's truly a head scratcher. It doesn't do the central thing it set out to do, which is to close out all pathways for Iran to have a nuclear weapon, but instead gives them money, gives them resources and a clear patient pathway to a nuclear program. It's still early because I'm fair minded and honest with you. It's still early to, to assess the Biden administration foreign policy. And, and I don't just mean to to assess it based on what it's done, because obviously that's very early. But I mean, we're not even really all that clear on what it is. You'll notice they don't talk about it very much. And, and here's why uh, the the one area that I think after eight years of Obama, well, there were several areas where you just say it was indefensibly bad. But one area where they they really were always on defense was on foreign policy, because anybody who observed what happened under the Obama years, under eight years of the Obama administration, could easily point to the fact that every uh, so-called hot zone for conflict, right, every place where there was active fighting, military engagement, got worse under Obama's time in office. Uh, the rise of the Islamic State, uh, the uh, terrorist attacks in Europe and here at home in America that were occurring, 
the deterioration in Libya, in Syria, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, um, and and the the only thing that they pointed to as their big win was a deal that the Iranians, I mean, the, the Iranians couldn't believe their luck, that they had such inept and delusional negotiators like John Kerry on the other side of the table where it's just, hey, can you guys stop doing all that nuclear stuff you do? You don't have to destroy anything. You don't have to, like, actually dismantle it, get rid of it. Uh, but there are going to be some places that we can inspect. Okay, fine. But we're going to let you get a whole lot more access to the international finan- uh, international financial system in, you know, intertwine yourselves in the international global banking network, get a whole lot richer, keep testing traditional ballistic missiles and suffer no real co- consequences or pain for what you've done up to this point. And we'll even deliver pallets of literal pallets of cash to you as part of this. And the Obama administration turned around and said, see, look how great we are. And everybody that understands what the heck's going on in the Middle East said, eh, this was not a good idea. They're going to go back to that now. The failed foreign policy of eight years of the Obama administration, you're about to see a replay of it now under the Biden administration. They've learned no lessons. In fact, what everybody who who is reasonable and who is honestly has good judgment sees as just a, a, a litany of failure, the Obama team thinks they did a really good job. And the Obama team is now the Biden team. And they're going to do the same stuff including with Iran. So keep your eye on it, folks. Will the man once known as the love gov manage to keep his position as the governor of New York State, Governor Cuomo? We have our friend Michael Goodwin from the New York Post joining now to discuss. Michael, great to have you. My pleasure, Buck. Thank you. Let, let's just start with this. Uh, do you do you think now that that we're at a point where the pressure is, is it more likely that he actually goes than stays in your estimation in his role? More likely he goes. And I say that not because I think he's going to resign soon. I think he's going to fight it out as far as he can and on any argument that he can make. But I do think that uh, the, the calls for him to resign are having some impact on public opinion. And I think that the investigation into the sexual harassment allegations seems to be moving pretty quickly. We, we had a report today that the uh, w- one of the first two women to come forward, Charlotte Bennett, uh, met with investigators, uh, the outside investigators overseen by the attorney general, and spent four hours with them, gave them 120 documents uh, uh, that support her claims, according to her lawyer. So that surprised me that they're moving that quickly. And I'm very confident that these women are telling something that about something that actually happened. And I say that, and that was the reason I wrote the Sunday piece about the heroes. Um, the seven, The seven women who have come forth are all are different. The the stories are different, but the pattern is the same. And I think that it's not the sort of thing you come forward and say, unless it's true. Uh, Andrew Cuomo's reputation for ruthlessness and for revenge would deter 
many people from coming forward, uh, even with the truth. And it did deter these women for some time. It was only when the first one, Lindsay Boylan, came public that the second one then quickly came public. And then we've had five more since then. So it's, it's fair to assume that none of them would have come public if the first one hadn't started and then the second one. Uh, those were the two most dramatic. And because no one had heard this story before. So I've been around long enough uh, to trust my gut on these things, reading what these women have said, listening to what they say in their interviews, knowing the governor as I know him, knowing uh, the way he operates his government. I've, I strongly believe these women are telling the truth Um uh, And I don't believe that he is innocent. I believe that the investigation will show that more and more members of his staff were involved in one way or another. Uh, I mean, just for example, lately, which seems fairly innocuous, but when you think about it, it makes your skin crawl. He goes to these events, so whether it's a fundraiser, a party, or whatever it is. We saw the picture of him holding the, the cheeks of a woman at a wedding where he had officiated, saying, can I kiss you? Um, you you have other uh, women saying, not not among the seven, but who have spoken anonymously to reporters, uh, come, saying that they met the governor at a fundraiser or a party, and he would instantly just gravitate toward them, and the next day they would get a call from his office offering them a job. Um, they they didn't apply for jobs. They they weren't interested in the jobs, but it was a job offer from Andrew Cuomo, and they were paid well. They were told how to dress the way he'd like them to dress, according to these women. So you have all this kind of weird stuff. It's almost like it's a he's building a harem uh, of women where he's the only male, and and then he hits on numbers of them. So it's just a very strange situation that I think has has never been heard of in all the years that Andrew Cuomo has been governor. But but. I think it's real, and I think the investigators are going to find a lot of stuff if they if they are as diligent as diligent as they seem to be. One one thing, and we're speaking to Michael Goodwin. He has a piece in the New York Post: "The Courage of Andrew Cuomo's Accusers," which I recommend that you all you all check out. One thing you bring up in the piece, and I didn't know this, is that Lindsay Boylan, who was the first one to come forward, was actually married with a small child when the governor of New York is is kind of known among staffers to be pursuing her i mean just at a at a basic moral ethical level that's that's really gross i mean that that's grotesque behavior i mean what is he is he trying to be a homewrecker he's trying to ruin someone's life i mean it's i i don't view that that that's not you know office flirtation or anything else that's a power dynamic but also that's a guy who's looking to be a homewrecker i didn't know that till i read your piece yeah, I mean, and and she is in some ways a, a very interesting one, uh, Lindsay Boylan, because she's got clear documentation that she released. Uh, for example, uh, she, one of the governor's assistants sends Boylan an email, and uh, uh, Boylan releases the email in which she says, "The governor says you look like an old girlfriend of his. You should look her up. You could be her prettier sister." Now, this woman's name was Lisa Shields. She was the governor's former girlfriend, apparently. 
in meetings, the governor begins calling Lindsay Boylan Lisa. Now, the staff saw the email, and they know who Lisa Shields is. And the governor starts, in front of them, the governor starts calling Lindsay Boylan Lisa. Now, if that isn't demeaning, what is? Uh, he, there are other emails that Boylan has released that show uh, the governor's uh, assistant writing to Boylan's boss in the state department that she worked for saying, uh, I just got a question. Is your chief of staff going to be at the meeting tomorrow? And Boylan's direct supervisor writes back, ha, no, she won't be there, but she'll be worried about how the governor's day is going. So there is this flirtation where Boylan doesn't want any part of it, but the governor tells others he has a crush on her, and so they're all playing this game. The secretary is sending the note, will Boylan be at the meeting? Boylan's boss is playing along saying, ha, no, but she'll be worried about the governor. I mean, no, she wasn't worried about the governor. She wasn't interested in the governor, but that's the way this office created that dynamic. And so I think a lot of these people are going to be put under oath by these investigators, and they're going to have to talk about this. And so I think Andrew Cuomo, his refusal to resign uh, may buy him some time, but I feel really confident that these investigators are going to find a mother load of information about the way he operated that office that is going to be repulsive to the vast majority of New Yorkers. Michael, I'm curious as to your take on why the, the corporate media in general uh, obviously not all, and I, I've been very quick to point out that the New York Post broke the nursing home scandal wide open last May, um, but that the corporate media in general has been so much more focused on the sexual harassment than on the nursing home disaster, and 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 the Democrat Party too, right? All the Democrats, Schumer, who said that he should resign, he should resign. Uh, Gillibrand, so the two senators from New York have said he should resign, AOC and most of the New York State congressional delegation to D.C., you know, they've all said that um, a majority of them have said that, that mm-hmm. he should resign. Uh, it's all about the sexual harassment. I don't hear anyone saying he should resign because he sent seniors to their deaths with a, a, a just catastrophic executive order. What do you make of that? Well, some of them have, but you're right. The the majority have not. Uh, The majority have focused on the sexual harassment. And uh, I should point out uh, the the column of mine that you cited, Buck, uh, I salute in there three women who kept the nursing home disaster alive and front and center, even when the Post was the only uh, media outlet interested in it. And those three women uh, are all directly involved in it. Uh, One of them wrote to me uh, in uh, April telling me about the order when her her mother had died in a nursing home. No one had written about the order in terms of its impact. I had no idea about it myself. but that's what got the post going on it. We wrote about it, uh, the, the death it was, the death it was causing. Uh, you have Janice Dean, of course, the Fox meteorologist who lost birth of both of her uh, in-laws in nursing homes to COVID. She has been an enormously forceful personality uh, for the for the grieving families. None of which the governor has ever met. 
I mean, that's another part of this, which also does not get enough attention, his heartlessness with these families. Just think if, you know, you, you had these families, they could not visit their loved ones, you, lest anyone bring COVID into the nursing homes. And the governor intentionally sends in, as it turns out, 9,000 discharged patients who are still positive with COVID into nursing homes, but the families couldn't go in because it was too dangerous. Uh, when And then, of course, the governor, because he is so thin-skinned, tried to cover all this up. And it was only when Letitia James, the third of the three women that I cite in this category, when the state attorney general did a report on this and said the governor was probably undercounting nursing home deaths by 50 percent, that Cuomo finally put out most of the true numbers. He put out even more when a judge on a freedom of information request uh, declared that he must. So all of this has come out. Uh, And you're right. Most of the media was celebrating him, that he did a great job. He was a covid leader. He was the antidote to Donald Trump. And I think for for the media, that was the main issue. He was not Trump. Uh, Trump was on every day with his uh, covid briefings for early on, especially. And so was Cuomo. And so it became a kind of dueling of the briefings and the Democrats and the media. They preferred Cuomo, even though, as we learn later, it was all wrong. And isn't, isn't that like everything else with the media, Buck? Uh, Russia, 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 Ukraine, all of it. He should be he should be impeached. He should be convicted. He should be thrown out. He should be locked up. Oops. We got it wrong. But they never admit it. They never say they're sorry. Uh, And the same with Cuomo. You're not hearing any of those media who lavish praise on him saying, boy, were we wrong. Not only did all these nursing home people die and not only did he hide the information, uh, even his book is full of lies because because it does the same thing that he did. He doesn't tell you the truth. Uh, so you would hope that reality would catch up, but the media, with its prejudice, always seems to be behind. Michael Goodwin of the New York Post, The Courage of Andrew Cuomo's Accusers. Check out his piece at NewYorkPost.com. Michael, real quick before we let you go, we've only got about a minute, but I, I did want to ask you, I'm starting to see something of early news stories breaking on this about New Jersey, which has the highest per capita death toll, higher than New York's, yes. and yet Governor Murphy somehow escapes... It seems to me even scrutiny, never mind scorn, for his actions, including a very similar policy on nursing homes in his state. What do you make of that? Uh, you're right. Um, he sent uh, almost exactly the same nursing home directive as Cuomo did. He sent it six days after uh, New York's came March 25th. New Jersey's came March 31st. Uh I've spoken to nursing home association and other directors and some families in New Jersey. It's a mixed thing there because the one distinction was that Murphy, uh, Murphy's Department of Health apparently worked with the nursing home association to let them exempt some nursing homes. And so not everybody, not all nursing homes were forced to take these COVID patients. Many of them were, and they got they got the similar result with New York. It spread like wildfire. I think particularly the veterans' home uh, was maybe one of the worst hit in the country. Worst in the whole, worst in the whole country, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm sure they took a lot of COVID uh, from hospitals. But the uh, 
some of the others were able to get out of it, and that's because the Nursing Home Association in New Jersey worked quickly to get the governor's ear, or at least the state health director. But you're right in, in the large sense that they followed the same policy with the same deadly results, and the fact that New Jersey um, has, a, has the highest per capita death total uh, tells you something, that many of those deaths came in nursing homes. Other states did something similar, too. Pennsylvania did it. Uh, and we see that uh, the Pennsylvania health secretary is now going to be the, a, a top uh, official in the Biden administration. And she apparently took her mother out of a nursing home before the policy took effect. It so feels, there are a yeah. lot of questions that are unanswered about unnecessary deaths in in the COVID. I think that's the way to properly classify this. These Michael people, Goodwin, everybody in the New York Post. Michael, please keep... Please keep checking all this stuff out. We got to we got to go to a break now. We appreciate you joining us. We'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure, Buck. Thank you. It's the same message that I say to the owners of Walmart, the Walton family, the wealthiest family in America. We're living in an economy where the very, very rich are doing phenomenally well. Working families are struggling. So I say to Jeff Bezos, Jeff, you're worth one hundred and eighty two billion dollars. That's a lot of money. What is your problem with allowing workers in Alabama to organize for better wages and for better working conditions? You can afford to pay them more. And to the Walton family that owns Walmart, you're the richest family in America. Why are you having a starting wage of $11 an hour so that your workers have to go on public assistance supplemented by the taxpayers of this country? We are going to deal with this issue, Ali, of income and wealth inequality. It is a very dangerous issue. It is worse now than at any time it has been in the last hundred years. We cannot have a moral society or a strong economy when so few have so much and so many have so little. That's the struggle we're engaging in right now. It is a dangerous issue, dangerous for a society, but not really in the way that Bernie Sanders means here. Envy is very uh, powerful in politics, and so are things like misdirection and a a disingenuous focus. These are these are very powerful things. So when when he talks about Jeff Bezos here, oh, my gosh, one hundred and sixty billion dollars, whatever it is. Yeah. Jeff Bezos can afford to pay more. Right. Of course he can. It doesn't really matter to Jeff Bezos. Uh, But what you're seeing in the tax plan, which I I wanted to talk about more today, I mean, they're going to tax. They're going to tax people more than we've we've seen in in years, perhaps even in decades in this country, is that they're going to start to really raise raise the rates on corporations. That's the big place. I think they're going to raise them maybe six, seven percent, something like that, based on the early uh, early numbers they're talking about. And so they're, they're looking at a big corporate tax hike, which is just going to mean the government is taking more money out of the private sector. And it means that hiring and investment and corporate growth is going to slow down because they'll talk about Amazon. And you'll say, well, Amazon is so powerful, so big. it can." Yeah, but there are a lot of companies that aren't Amazon. The same way they'll talk about taxing Jeff Bezos more. But there are a lot of people that after working, you know, their brains out for 10 or 15 years, they finally make four hundred thousand dollars a year. And now they're treated like they're in a similar financial situation to a billionaire in terms of their tax rate. And they're not. And they're also looking at taxing capital gains more, which, you know, look, they're they're honing in a little more on actually going after the very wealthy and not just, you know, everybody. 
But there are effects of that. There are there are downstream uh, issues that they will not admit. And it's all just going to it's going to be like the minimum wage argument. What feels good to people is going to be more important than what actually is when it comes to taxes. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. It's time for Roll Call. Producer Mark in the house. Producer Mark, what's going on, man? You know, holding it down for the Freedom Hut, making sure that the uh, the hut doesn't collapse. How's everything going? Going well. You know, Buck, you, you asked for a bunch of uh, reviews on the Apple Podcast Store. Uh, can I report on how that's going? Yes. Uh, well, it's going very well. We're getting lots of five-star reviews. But I noticed something about what people are writing. I'm not sure if you noticed this also. About 90% of them mention a certain producer of this show. Really? Yeah. Well, look at that. Look How at many that. family members do you have I mean, that you could have all these reviews like this? It's not really a big family book. I'm just saying. Huh. I don't know. Your second cousins out there, the the producer Mark second cousins are weighing in apparently. Do you have some do you have some exemplars of uh, of some of these reviews you'd like to share on air? Oh uh, no, there's nothing there was nothing that made me chuckle this time. It was just mostly oh, okay. positive for Cuz if we have us. any funny ones, I obviously want to read those too. Yes, the funny ones so. I, I I gladly read, but there were no funny ones this time. Well, just... I really appreciate. Thank you for keeping an eye on that, Mark. I really appreciate all the folks listening who do that. It, it it's very helpful to us. Please five-star reviews. If you listen to the podcast of the show, it it it, it affects who Apple will show as a podcast for new discovery purposes. And the more people know about and listen to this show, the more people want to keep listening to the show. That's the, we're, we're like a product that, you know, we're not on the top shelf with a giant display case around us as a podcast where I'm saying, you know, download this, download this. Some other folks kind of have that situation going for them, which is nice for them. But we're a podcast. We're like the amazing cookie that you find, you know, the, in the, in the box, on the middle shelf next to some other, and you go, wait a second, these are the best cookies. I should eat these cookies all the time. So that's that's the way this works, and that's why our, our numbers keep growing, even though, like I said, we have no marketing budget. You know, I I, I didn't, I uh, wasn't able to, like, buy a few million Facebook followers or something. It's all organic, as they say. It's all just people spreading the word about the show, and I really, really appreciate that. So, Producer Mark, it looks like it's, looks like it's working. It, it absolutely is, and, you know, uh, I just want to point out, maybe I'm the straw that stirs the drink around here. I, you know, you know, keeps the trains. I told Mark today, for those of you who watch Billions, you're really going to appreciate this comparison. And if now Mark should watch it just so he understands. But but Producer Mark is my wags. You know, he's, he's my, my wags from the show Billions, played by the actor... Um, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember the guy's names. Is it Michael Wags Wagner is the is the uh, is the char- is the um, character. Oh, played by David Costabile, and he does a great job. But yeah, producer Mark is my Wags for those of you that watch Billions. So he he like lays down the law. You know, he makes sure that I actually show up to the office and that everything is like working as it should. So oh, he's anyway. a good actor too. I like. Oh, he's a very good. good. He's the best character on the show, actually, in my opinion. Well, I'll be uh, Paul I mean, Giamatti's also Paul Giamatti's also really good. And producer Mark, another show that I'm telling you, you would like. All right. I, uh, I have actually heard of that show and have had it on the peripheral of uh, shows I want to watch. Like you will enjoy yeah. Billions for sure. And I think Mrs. Mark would would like it, too. It's all it's all shot and set in New York, New York area. 
So there's a lot of stuff. <clears throat> a lot of the scenes are down by, you know, the federal courthouse downtown in Lower Manhattan, actually near where our old uh, Tribeca studio used to be, not too far from there. Technically, it's still there. Indeed. Um, so anyway, producer Mark is my wags. And now we can uh, we can get to some of the a- any exciting sports for the sports fans listening for this week that they should know about. Uh, for this week, no, it's kind of quiet. I mean, baseball season starts in two weeks. That's what I'm excited for. April 1st, the Mets open their season, and I could not be more excited. Most excited. I'm sure I've asked this before, but yeah. what is, you told me Miracle might be the best yeah. sports movie of all time. What is the best baseball Ooh. movie of all time? I mean, there's so many contenders there, because baseball is the movie that, is the sport that has probably been uh, depicted by movies most. Huh. I mean, I, I love Major League if you like comedy, but a lot of people would probably argue with me that that's not the best baseball movie. I, I will tell you, I think Major League is a fantastic movie. I love Major League. <laughs> like, I, I can watch Major League anytime. I think it's great. Uh, so we're, we're totally on the same page on that one. I think Major League is amazing. Uh, and, you know, I, but I feel like everyone wants to say Field of Dreams. I feel like that's yeah, the one. Or that's the maybe Bull Durham. And I will tell you, I've never seen Bull Durham, and I completely have forgot. I know the basic premise of Field of Dreams, but I can't even remember one minute of it. So a lot of people throw know. the Sandlot out there as well. Is that really a baseball movie? I feel like it's more of a coming of age movie than a baseball movie. Sure, but it revolves around. There is there is there is the baseball. I agree. Uh, so yeah, there's some. Moneyball or if you're a hey, producer Mark, if you're a big Rosie O'Donnell fan, there's always a league of their own. I mean, it's a solid movie. <laughs> Look at him. He even gives respect to a league of their own. I know there's some uh, other well, good there's ones. A, there's nothing to not respect. It was a good film. Well, that's it. Madonna's in it. Madonna. Yeah. You know, she's from Michigan. Kind of random. I didn't know that. Yeah, she's from huh. Michigan. I guess all, all the right, stars let's get aren't into... always from the coast. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm saying. Like, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't expect her to be kind of. I mean, I think Michigan is the heartland. Or do we consider Michigan the heartland? Or is it kind of its own thing? I'd say it's the heartland. Yeah, why not? Like we're on, you know, we got KFAB, Omaha, Nebraska. For like, that's definitely the heartland. Texas feels to me like the heartland. Although Texas is almost its own country. Um, yeah, I think Michigan's the heartland. It's not a coast, and it's not the South. So I think it's got to be considered heartland. All right, uh, Bob. Hey, Buck. Active duty Marine here, stationed overseas. I want to share my recent experience with the stand down on extremism that happened. I believe every American should know what the military is now teaching. My unit underwent a 90-minute presentation discussion on extremism and racism and everything else you'd expect. My intelligence was insulted. I was offended. I was offended that the Pentagon brass and the administration deem it necessary to lecture us as if we are children. The military needs to be a meritocracy, not some partisan social justice initiative. Nobody here cares what color your skin is neither a priority nor even a remote consideration in training and here in the fleet we have people of every single ethnic group you can imagine in every part of the core we have each other's back because we serve our country the last thing we need in national defense is to be preoccupied with destructive ideologies and woke culture it sickened me to sit through this garbage if the military wants to self-implode and turn good people away this is a great way to start well, Bob, first of all, thank you for your service. And also, we really appreciate you writing in to give us a, a sense of what's really going on here. I mean, I, I can share this with you, Bob. I remember from my time in the CIA and the counterterrorism side of things, how we were working against Al Qaeda. I mean, we had whole units and whole offices and everything 
devoted to fighting against jihadist terrorism. And yet when we'd sit in these unclassified trainings that some contractor would come in, you know, some person would come in and, and teach a, a module for the government. This is when I was at the NYPD intelligence division. Uh, they'd come in and teach some module. And it was always, oh, the, you know, like the, the shining light of Christ terrorist group is looking to blow up City Hall. And, you know, there was, oh, it was like, uh, it's like, is this really, this is really what we're worried about? Okay. Uh, okay. I guess this is, you know, it was always a guy named Bob who hates the government, who was the terrorist entity that we were, we were supposed to use as, as the example. I understand it's fictionalized, although not always were these things fictionalized. Uh, but it was very clear what was going on. It was very obvious what was uh, what the situation actually was there. And and it sounds it sounds like that's even now in, in the in the military side of things. Uh, Bob, I'm just sorry to hear you got to deal with this. But if you would, Bob, I mean, if you can, I'm assuming, obviously, this is all unclassified stuff. Send us another note and tell us what kind of stuff were they teaching? I mean, if this is unclassified being taught to the military. You should be able to tell us, like, what what are they saying? about racism and extremism you know give us some sense of it if you can i obviously don't want you know anyone to get in any trouble or anything but i, I would like to know and i do think there's a need to blow the whistle on this stuff what are they teaching people in the military i mean when it comes to racism right, I'm, I'm not asking for someone to send in information about some classified weapon system i'm like okay how are they teaching the military racism is bad i, I think that's unclassified so we can all talk about that uh richard buck i've been on vacation and now i'm marathoning your show which is great well, Richard, you've got amazing taste. One thing no one is talking about is when they stop selling books. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. have all these Dr. Seuss books and trans books in all their warehouses. They won't keep them. They'll quietly throw them into the recycling bins and they will be shredded quietly out of the watchful eyes of the public. How is this any different from burning books? It seems much more Stalinist because Stalin did many things in secret. Still, it's very troubling. Hold your banned books and your shields high. Yeah, Richard, as people have been pointing out, those who ban books and burn books are never the good guys throughout all throughout history. The book burners, the book banners, these are not the people that had uh, that had the force of righteousness on their side. And the left is drunk with power and frenzied and emotionally distraught at having to deal with things in reality that it doesn't that the left does not approve of. You know, like men and women are different. This this is upsetting to the left. They don't want to they don't want to hear this. They don't want to accept this. And that then brings me to what we can do about this. And that is we have to have a whole rethink of institutions in this country. And, and we need we need explicitly conservative institutions in every facet of American society. We need publishing houses. We need social media platforms. We need server farms. We need. We need places that are and let's be clear, our values are that we could, you know, we're not looking to censor any books or whatever, but we're saying that we'll at least defend the conservative value of free access to the marketplace. We'll consent. We'll defend the conservative value of of, uh, you know, content neutrality in speech in the political sphere as a social media platform, for example. But also maybe just have some explicitly conservative things that, that do what they do. And we say, no, actually, it's got to be conservative. I mean, you know, we got to think about that as well. But we are shut out now of institutions in a way that they're, they're transforming the country with this control. 
We are living in a different America. We'll be living in a very different America in 10, 15, 20 years if this trend continues. And they know that, which is why they're not even really hiding it anymore and which is why they feel as though their beliefs, their ideology is so ascendant at this point. Continuing on with Roll Call, we have Joseph. Remember, if you want to be a part of Roll Call, go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And also, please just go to bucksexton.com. You can always press play on the podcast there. That's uh, very much a an easy way to listen to the Buck Sexton show anytime. So you listen on your local station, great. But if you need to listen on demand, uh, you can listen on your smartphone. Just go to bucksexton.com, press play or on the iHeartRadio app or the podcasts that you have in Apple, the Apple Podcast Store. Just type in Buck Sexton, it'll pop up. Joseph writes, hey, Buck, I was excited for about a second when I found out that California was authorizing gyms to open up again. My enthusiasm started to wane when the people from the gym made sure to warn me that I would have to wear a mask over my mouth and nose at all times. I thought one of the reasons that get that I was getting my out of shape body on the bike was to get the heart going a little more. If I do that, isn't a suffocating mask going to hamper my breathing in a perhaps dangerous way? Adding insult to injury, the email also told me that amenities like the sauna and jacuzzi would not be available. Also, I was informed that billing my account would resume. I don't think that steam room saunas and jacuzzis are hospitable to the virus and are among the reasons I like using the gym. I bought my own exercise bike, but it would be very costly to buy my own steam room or jacuzzi. I hate counseling my account over the issue because obviously my gym has probably taken it in the shorts, paying the lease in the building. But since the state is making them cut out these amenities, billing my account almost feels like they're stealing from me. It's not what I agreed to. What think ye? Listen to the show all the time. Thanks. Joseph this is a tough one. I mean, I actually, I was in my gym yesterday, but it's a, it's a gym in my building. So it's kind of a private gym, but there's, I mean, there are hundreds of people live in my buildings. There's a lot of people use that gym. And, you know, I, I saw a guy, there was one other guy, because I went kind of late, who didn't have a mask on when I walked in, and he kind of scurried to go pull his mask, put a mask on when I walked in. And I told him, buddy, buddy, come on. Do I look like a hypochondriac to you? It's fine. Don't, don't, don't put a mask on. All right. I, I, not for me, at least. Unless you want to protect yourself from me, that's fine. But I was like, don't do it on my behalf. I don't care. And he was like, oh, that's great. He's like, I'm so excited. And so, you know, the two of us were in there working out. I actually wore my mask because I knew what was going to happen, which is that within minutes, somebody else was going to come in. And it was someone who I know is a super masker. And, you know, she would have a, and so he had to put his mask on. But it's so stupid, folks. It really is. Okay. It's just outrageous. Now we're going to be on, we're going to be on the treadmill. And they think that what the air that I'm breathing, there's already social distancing. So we've got treadmills separated by like 10 feet. And they're worried that the air I'm breathing out is going to circulate all over the room. Well, if that can happen, the mask isn't stopping air from getting out around the side, so it's still circulating. So you know, it's just the whole thing is so dumb. I, I don't know what to tell you, uh, Rob. Uh, I'm sorry, not Rob, uh, Joseph, about this because, you know, they, they just there's so much anxiety out there and they like this control and they don't want to let it go. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I tried to do some cardio yesterday, which was really tough. I mean, my cardio my cardio fitness is probably the lowest it's ever been in my life right now. I'm just going to say it. My strength is getting a little better, but my cardio fitness is at an all-time low. And I'm trying to start doing some cardio to build this back up. And I'm just, I've got this sopping wet, gross mask on my face. And I'm just sitting here, I'm like, thanks, Fauci, you little, you little idiot. This is not helping anybody. I don't have COVID. There's no one else around me. They're not going to get COVID from me being on the treadmill. 
But if, oh gosh, I pull my mask down, everyone's going to get sick, everyone's going to die. It's idiotic. Gyms are not major nodes of transmission. Therefore, they should be considered acceptable and we don't need to mask in the damn gym. But they don't listen to me on this stuff. All right, we have uh, Chris writing, Hey, Buck, producer Mark, great job, guys. Thanks for always giving us the truth, whether we want to hear it or not. Great job exposing the terrible Colorado governor. I heard you say you've never been to Colorado. Well, will you please come visit rural Colorado, the red part of the state? Good folks out here. They'll treat a New York City guy like family. I'm sure they will, Chris. Thank you. As for the beer, I'm also gluten-free because it wrecks my insides. Not sure if you can get it on the East Coast, but Holiday Brewing Company from Golden, Colorado makes good gluten-free beer. Favorite blonde is my favorite, Shields High. Well, Chris, thank you for the uh, the the tip, the heads up on this one. I was I was unaware of that, so I will have to uh, I'll have to check that one out. Thanks so much for uh, for writing in, and um, I'll gi- I'll give it a shot. And for all of you. Uh, you should give a shot to passing the buck. Tell somebody new this week or this weekend. Hey, check out this guy, Buck Saxton. He's got a pretty darn good podcast. You really enjoy it. And that's it for us. Producer Mark and I are signing off. Back tomorrow. Shields high.